We are in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to reconnect man with God, restoring the relationship that we were all created for. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books we find in the Bible. These four books are collectively referred to as the Gospels. And today we're gonna begin in chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke. And as we pick up our study, it is the morning of the day Jesus will die on the cross in our place. In our last study, Jesus was taken to the Praetorium in Jerusalem, which is the headquarters of the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. The Jews were under Roman rule and the Romans had forbidden the Jews from executing capital punishment. In other words, they could not carry out the death sentence. Only their Roman rulers could do that. And so the Jews that had wanted to kill Jesus, the religious leaders, had gone to the Praetorium where Pontius Pilate was to try and convince him that Jesus is a threat to the Roman state and he needs to be executed. And we concluded our last study by seeing Pilate declaring the truth to those Jewish religious leaders who were calling for Jesus' death when Pilate said to them, I find no fault in this man. I, I can't execute this guy, he's innocent. Then we're told, but they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. In other words, he's a troublemaker. He's gonna make trouble for you, Pontius Pilate. You gotta execute him. But Pilate, desperate to find a way out of this messy situation, perks up when he hears the word Galilee. And we'll find out why as we dive into the text in Luke 23, verse six. It says, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man, that's Jesus, were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So as we mentioned last week, hanging over Pilate at this time is an immense amount of political pressure. He's had some mess ups and issues that have caused him to be placed on a short leash with Rome because the way that Rome expects you to rule their territory is no uprisings, no riots, no incidents. So the more of those that happen, the worse your job performance is if you are the governor. And he's in the place now where one more riot, one more little rebellion in his territory would most likely mean the end of his career. So when he hears that this Jesus is from Herod's territory up north in Israel, in Galilee, he's thrilled because for him, he's thinking, this is how I can get rid of this whole Jesus problematic situation. And wouldn't you know it, it's the feast of Passover, so Herod's actually in Jerusalem too right now. Send him across town to Herod. This Herod is Herod Antipas, is his full name. He's the Tetrarch, that's his title, of Galilee and Perea. Basically, he's the governor of the northern region of Israel. He's half Samaritan, half Edomite. And the reason you know his name is because he comes from one of the most wicked families in history. The more you get around the Bible and the Gospels, you'll find the Herods are always doing terrible, terrible things. This Herod had recently had John the Baptist the man that Jesus called the greatest man who ever lived born of woman. That's what Jesus called John the Baptist. Herod had had him imprisoned because John had had the nerve to call Herod out on his crazy wild immorality around his marriage. And ultimately he had John beheaded so that he himself wouldn't be embarrassed at a party. Herod's in Jerusalem for the same reason Pilate is, which is to keep a close watch on the Passover celebrations and make sure that all the Jewish nationalism around this holiday doesn't overflow into some sort of rebellion. Verse eight, now when Herod saw Jesus, so Jesus is now before Herod, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Herod was well acquainted with Jewish law, custom, and even their scriptures, and he had heard about this Jesus, who some said was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah or some other old prophet. 
Some people were even saying that this Jesus was John the Baptist returned from the dead. Being the one responsible for John's murder, Herod was curious to talk to this Jesus for himself, but not out of any genuine desire to seek the truth or anything like that. He just wanted to satisfy his curiosity, and he actually hoped to see Jesus do some sort of miracle. But the way that you would hope to see a great magician perform an amazing illusion, he wants to be entertained by this Jesus. Verse 9 Then he, Herod, questioned him, that's Jesus, with many words, underline this, but he answered him nothing. While Jesus barely spoke to his other accusers, Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate, Herod is the only one to whom Jesus will say not a single word, not one word. You may recall earlier in his ministry, Jesus declared, that he never said anything unless his Father in heaven told him to say it. So apparently, if Jesus is saying nothing to Herod, it's because God has nothing to say to Herod. It seems that Herod, by this point, has passed the spiritual point of no return. It's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He had heard truth clearly from John the Baptist and had chosen to silence the voice of God by murdering John instead of listening to him. Herod had hardened his heart so many times and to such an extreme degree that he would never be saved. And at this point, he's out of opportunities. And so Jesus has nothing to say to him. You see, Herod isn't the one judging Jesus. Jesus is the one judging Herod. It's a serious and sobering reminder that when Jesus speaks to us, when God reveals truth to us through somebody, we should listen because we don't know if he's going to speak again. So what do you do if God has gone silent in your life and you're thinking, what if he's never going to speak to me again? you need to ask yourself, what was the last thing I heard Jesus saying to me? What was the last issue he raised? Because sometimes Jesus will address an issue in our lives and we'll say, nope, not gonna deal with that now. And then months go by and we suddenly realize, you know, it seems like forever since I've heard from the Lord. And it's because we thought that when God spoke to us about that issue in our lives, we could just say, no, we're not gonna talk about that, God but we're gonna keep this thing going. We're gonna keep talking back and forth. And what the Lord said was, we got nothing to talk about until we deal with this issue. And so if you feel like God has gone silent in your life, I encourage you to spend some time pondering the question, what was the last thing you heard him say to you? When was the last time you felt him speak to you? Go back and make sure that you've responded to what God has told you. Because often God will not reveal any further truth until you respond to the truth that he's already revealed to you. So write this down. Herod had already heard truth from John the Baptist, so he did not receive any more of it. He had already heard truth, so he did not receive any more of it. If you're not gonna do anything with the truth God has given you, why would he give you more of it? Verse 10, and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, they accused Jesus. Then Herod with his men of war, that just means his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Luke's gospel tells us that Herod found no fault in Jesus either. So. Along with that judgment that he can't find anything wrong with Jesus, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. But before he does that, he makes a mockery of Jesus by playing up the charge that has been leveled against Jesus. You'll remember the religious leaders had told Pilate, listen, he's saying that he's a king, which means he's a threat to Rome. And when they interviewed Jesus, they realized he's no threat. Jesus had told Pilate that my kingdom's not of this world, so it's no threat to you. So Herod and his soldiers beat Jesus and they put a military robe on him that's in a royal color and uh, 
they riff and joke around on this idea that he's a king, someone this pathetic, and they send him back to Pilate. And apparently Pilate finds the joke hilarious because he doesn't mind that Herod has sent Jesus back to him. And it actually creates a friendship between these two governors where previously there had been a rivalry. And I've shared on this before, in our world there's only two sides, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Everything and everyone is in one of those two places. And it's amazing to see the groups of people who will come together over their common hatred of Jesus. People who you think have nothing in common, who would even be opposed to each other, will end up partnering up on things because they both hate Jesus. I'll just give you one example. I've shared before how absurd it is that in our culture, liberal, militant feminists are often among the most staunch defenders of Islam. So whenever there's a rally, watch out for Islamophobia, they're gonna be there, staunch feminists, which makes no sense because Islam is an incredibly oppressive religious system towards women, and all you have to do is go and look at countries that are ruled by Islamic governments, and the examples are everywhere. And so you look at it and you think, well, if you're a feminist, wouldn't you be opposed to Islam on principle? You know, since women aren't even allowed to show their faces, they can't show any part of their skin, even their ankles, the husband can beat his wife if she refuses to have sex with him, wouldn't you be opposed to that system of religion? But they're not. Because there's only ultimately two systems at work in the world. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And so when people are in the kingdom of Satan, you might think they should be against each other, but they'll end up partnering up on things in the strangest ways because they have a shared hatred of Jesus. At this point, I'm gonna ask you to flip forward in your Bibles to the next gospel, which is John, and find chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. John 18, and then we're gonna pick it up in verse 39. John 18, verse 39. Pilate calls the men of the Sanhedrin, that's all the Jewish religious leaders, and the mob that they've gathered together, and he tells them all, listen, I could find no fault in Jesus. Herod can find no fault in Jesus, so I'm going to scourge him and then release him, and we'll explain more about that in a minute. In the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, we're told that Pilate, quote, knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. Because of envy, isn't that interesting? The real motivation, the real reason behind their seemingly illogical hatred of Jesus was envy. They wanted what Jesus had. They wanted the power that he had to work miracles. They wanted the wisdom and insight that he taught with and answered questions with. They wanted the peace and the joy and the magnetism he had. They wanted people to want to be around them the way that people wanted to be around Jesus. But they didn't want to give their lives to Jesus. They just wanted what Jesus had for themselves so that they could be the ones who would be worshipped and adored. Now why does that sound so familiar? Because before Satan was Satan, he was an archangel named Lucifer. Bible tells us the most beautiful and glorious of all the angels in heaven. But he envied the glory that God had and he craved it for himself, which led him to stage a failed rebellion in heaven which resulted in him being cast down to the earth and transformed from the glory of heaven into the darkness of Satan. And this is the warning, you can make a note of this. Envy always causes you to miss the incredibly good things that are right in front of you. Envy always causes you to miss the incredibly good things that are right in front of you. You're focusing on what you don't have instead of everything you do. And no greater example of that has ever existed than the Jewish religious leaders missing out on Jesus because they envied him. If they hadn't allowed envy to take them over, they would have heard the message of Jesus, which is everything I have, my glory, my kingdom, my joy, I want to share it all with you. And I want you to have it and be part of it. But they wanted it all for themselves without Jesus. And so they missed him. Pilate continues speaking to the Jewish religious leaders and the mob in verse 39. And he says, 
but you have a custom that I should release someone to you with the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus? Ancient secular sources tell us that the Romans would occasionally grant amnesty at the request of their subjects. And so it's safe to assume that they would do it at something like the Feast of Passover when as many Jews as possible would be in Jerusalem to see their incredible kindness. So they would take a convicted criminal and at the request of the Jewish people, they would release one of those convicted criminals at Passover as a sign of how magnanimous and generous they were as their Roman rulers. And John actually tells us this was a regular Passover tradition. So Pilate is thinking, if Jesus is the king of the Jews, then surely they're gonna ask for him to be the one who gets amnesty. Problem solved. Now Mark tells us that the chief priests stirred up the crowd, which means they bribed, they lied, and they did whatever they had to do to create an angry mob so that, verse 40, then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Luke's gospel tells us that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. You see, Barabbas was considered a terrorist. He was someone who had participated in a bloody insurrection against Rome, but he wasn't a noble man. He was a thief and a violent man. He was on death row. And he wouldn't have been loved by the Jews either because if there was ever a failed rebellion, the Romans would come down so hard on the people in that area, it would make their life hell. If a group of 100 men tried to stage a rebellion, they would kill 2,000 people just to make a point. So there would have been people in Jerusalem at this time who had lost family members because of the failed rebellion that Barabbas was a part of. He wasn't a popular guy with the Jews and he was on death row with the Romans. The idea is that this was a rigged choice being presented by Pilate. He's putting up the worst man he can find to stack the odds in Jesus' favor. Continuing into chapter 19, it says, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The level of scourging here is known as the fustigatio, which is a different kind of scourging. There's three levels. This is the least severe. It's still a beating with a staff. It was a corrective punishment used for minor offenses, and this will be a lot less severe than the scourging that Jesus is going to get after he's sentenced to die. So Pilate seems to be hoping that he can avoid sentencing Jesus to death by having him scourged fustigatio. He's hoping that when the people see that Jesus has suffered, he's been beaten, that their bloodlust will die down and they'll ask for him to be released because they'll feel like it would be wrong to keep asking for more punishment for Jesus at this point. This scourging is also illegal because Jesus is being assigned a punishment without actually ever being sentenced for any charges. Verse two, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. This crown was made from the long spikes, they'd be up to 12 inches long, of a date palm that were formed into an imitation of the radiating crowns which Near Eastern kings wore at this time. The long thorns would have cut deeply into his head, adding to the pain and bleeding. So why a crown of thorns? other than the pain it would inflict on him. Because back in Genesis three, after Adam and Eve's sin, causing the whole world to fall into the brokenness of sin, thorns are one of the things that are specifically mentioned as being caused by the curse of sin coming upon the earth. The Lord said to them in Genesis three, it should be on your outlines, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So the picture symbolically and spiritually is Jesus wearing the curse of sin upon his head in the form of the crown of thorns. So write this down. In his death, Jesus was crowned with the curse of our sin. In his death, Jesus was crowned with the curse of our sin. 
Purple was the color of royalty at this time, and so they grab what is some sort of military robe and fling it around Jesus again to further mock his claim to be king. Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before this, 500 years before this, wrote down these words that the Lord told him to record, speaking prophetically of Jesus. In Isaiah 50 verse 6 it says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. We're gonna find that the details of what Jesus will go through on the way to the cross are generally far more horrific than we have any idea. Verse four, Pilate then went out again in front of the people and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. So Pilate brings Jesus before the people presenting the ridiculous spectacle of a bloodied and bruised man dressed in a a crown of thorns wearing a royal robe who's been beaten with a staff hoping to make Jesus look so pathetic that the people would understand he's not the threat they claimed him to be and would call for his release. In fact, in the book of Acts, Acts 3.13, it tells us that Pilate was, quote, determined to let him go. This is the moment where Pilate thinks he's gonna be able to declare Jesus innocent and the whole thing's gonna be over. Verse six, therefore when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Luke's gospel tells us that Pilate said to the crowd, why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. We read, Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for, underline this, I find no fault in him. And the pronouns that are used by Pilate in the original Greek have what's called an emphatic force, which means it's indicating his disgust with the callousness of this crowd towards Jesus. He's thinking he's no threat. He's been beaten and bloodied. What what is with you guys? You people are sick. That's what he's thinking. Verse seven, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die. Underline this, because he made himself the son of God. Because he made himself the son of God. According to Leviticus 24, 16, in the law of God, the death penalty was to be applied for the blasphemy that they are accusing Jesus of. Obviously, it's not blasphemy to claim you're the son of God if you actually are the son of God. And as we've pointed out over and over in these last few studies, it's crazy for anyone to say that Jesus never made the claim he was God. Not only did Jesus make that claim over and over, but it was the very crime for which he was crucified. It's the reason they crucified him. He claimed to be God. Verse eight, Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. You see, Roman mythology is packed with demigods and titans and men and women who were gifted with supernatural powers. So when Pilate hears the crowd say that Jesus made himself the son of God, he gets nervous because of what he's done to Jesus because he begins to wonder to himself again, who is this man? He knows there's something special about Jesus and now he's wondering, have I arranged for the beating of some sort of demigod that I didn't know I was standing in the presence of. Verse nine, and Pilate went again into the praetorium where Jesus is and said to Jesus, where are you from? He asks nervously, thinking Jesus might say, you know, Mount Olympus or something like that. But Jesus, that's Greek mythology by the way, I don't know what the Roman equivalent is so I just threw that out there. But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, underline this whole answer from Jesus. This is profound. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. What a timely word this is at all times for us as Christians living in this world. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Our world is rife 
with wicked conspiracies, plans to stir up violence and hatred, schemes to destroy every shred of morality in the name of personal freedom, plots to start new wars, using technology to create a real-life Big Brother surveillance state. So, so why don't we build bunkers? Why don't we just start a commune in the middle of nowhere? Some of you are like, that's a great idea. I'm in. Well, firstly, because Jesus told us to live as salt and light in the world. And you can't be light to anybody if you're living somewhere where nobody can even see you. But the reason we don't do that is also because there is no evil at work in the world today that God is not allowing to take place. That's a heavy statement. There's no evil at work in the world today that God is not allowing and permitting to take place. You see, we're in a season of time where man is using his free will to perpetuate all kinds of wickedness and evil. And God is allowing it to a degree because without free will, you cannot have real love Love requires a choice, and we're living in this incredibly special season of time as people on the earth where God is giving us the free will opportunity to love him or to pursue evil. And the reason we don't freak out over the direction the world is headed is because the words that Jesus spoke to Pilate are still true today. You would have no power to do anything unless it were given to you by God. Those words are true for Justin Trudeau. They're true for Donald Trump. They're true for Kim Jong-un. They're true for all world governments. They're true for every major corporation. And they're true for whatever secret power brokers may exist in the shadows and be pulling the strings behind the curtain. You could have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. Judas thought he had an angle to benefit himself. Peter was thinking, I've got to defend Jesus. Where's my computer? I've got a lot of work to do on my blog. We look back at them and we think, why didn't they just trust Jesus and the things that he told them about the future? I think in heaven they look down at us and wonder, why don't they just trust Jesus and the things he has said to them about his plans for the future. Why are there Christians freaking out about things going on in the world? You could have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. So something we know but that we need to remember in our lives, write this down, very simple. God is sovereign over all things and all things will ultimately accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign over all things and all things will ultimately accomplish his purposes. People think they're taking power. People think they're the ones making decisions. One of my favorite verses, a man makes his plans, but the will of the Lord prevails. Jesus continues speaking to Pilate and says, therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This could be referring either to Judas or Caiaphas, but most likely Caiaphas because he instigated the whole plot against Jesus and had so much revelation about who Jesus was. Heard Jesus speak so many times, these religious leaders bore an even greater degree of guilt than Pilate did who was encountering Jesus for the first time this day. Verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him. I find it so interesting that Pilate's response after Jesus says to him, think about this, he's the ruler of Judea. He tells Jesus, don't you know I have the power to kill you or set you free? Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, you could have no power at all unless it had been given you from above. And the response to Pilate isn't, who do you think you're talking to? It's not, bam, how dare you, Jesus? The response from Pilate is, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Which means when Jesus said that to him, Pilate believed him. And Pilate knew that Jesus was telling the truth. And so he's trying now to release Jesus because he's figured out this Jesus is for real. He's someone special. I don't want anything to do with this. But the Jews cried out, we read, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. You see, they're threatening Pilate by telling him, if you don't crucify Jesus, we'll make sure that word gets back to Rome that you let a man go free who was stirring up trouble against Rome. And as we discussed earlier, that would be something Pilate would not survive politically or worse. Because the Caesar at this time, Caesar Tiberius, was infamous for his suspicious personality and ruthless punishments. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. When Pilate hears the crowd's threats to tattle to Rome, he's filled with fear. He shifts into self-preservation mode and sits down in the official judgment seat to render the verdict against Jesus. What a staggering spectacle this is when you think about this. A man, Pilate, rendering judgment against the one who will one day judge him in eternity. It's mind-blowing. Matthew's gospel tells us, while he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, sent a message saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Historians tell us that Pilate's wife had converted to Judaism, and interestingly enough, she seems to be making a reference here to one of Plato's writings from 380 BC. One of Plato's most famous works is called Republic, and in it he writes about a just man who was put on trial as an unjust man. And the idea is she's sending this message to her husband Pilate, referencing this work by Plato, saying Jesus is the just man being put on trial as an unjust man. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. This is reckoning by the Roman method of timekeeping, meaning it's around 6 a.m. in the morning. And Pilate, he said to the Jews, behold your king. Again, bringing Jesus out. Pilate's mocking the Jewish crowd now by saying, this pathetic figure is a fitting king for a pathetic people. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Blasphemy, blasphemy. As they remind Pilate again that they will tell Rome that he has been disloyal if he allows Jesus to live. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. So when Pilate saw that he couldn't persuade the crowd to release Jesus with a scourging and a riot was on the verge of breaking out, it goes on in Matthew's gospel and says, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. What a tragedy, because it has been. Since this time, Israel and her people have been a hated people, a persecuted people, a murdered people. The Holocaust, the Spanish genocide, and on and on and on throughout history you can look. It all goes back to this time and this moment essentially. Israel here renounces her entire history, identity, and everything God has done for her. And the incredible thing though is that God is perfectly faithful. Even though Israel disowned him, he will not disown Israel because that's who he is. As the word tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Hosea, the prophet, prophesied that Israel would do this hundreds of years earlier when he wrote, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. So in other words, he was prophesying their country's gonna be destroyed, they'll have no temple, they'll have no priesthood, which would happen very shortly after Jesus in 70 AD. 
But Hosea goes on to tell us Israel's story won't be over. And he goes on to say in the very next verse, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness. And then it says in the latter days, in the latter days. So later on in the end times that are quickly approaching today, through the great tribulation Israel will turn back to the Lord and be received by him. It's worth noting that Pilate never renders an official guilty verdict against Jesus, meaning Jesus is ultimately killed to fulfill the desires of the Jews, that he be killed for claiming to be the Son of God. He's not crucified for treason or sedition against Rome, but for blasphemy. Luke's gospel tells us, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. That's Barabbas. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And that's as far as we're going to go today in our timeline of events. But before we wrap up, I want us to take a closer look at two people that we encountered in the text today. The first is Pilate. And I want you to notice this. Pilate desperately wanted to find a way to remain neutral. He knew Jesus was innocent. More than that, he recognized that Jesus was special and that Jesus had, in his own words, no fault. But he was afraid of what it would cost him if he sided with Jesus, if he stood with Jesus. It would have meant the end of his political career. It would have cost him wealth, prestige, power, reputation, friendships, connections. It would have cost him dearly. And so Pilate frantically searched for a way to remain neutral on the issue of Jesus, a way to not become an enemy of Jesus, but also a way that wouldn't cost him anything. And he tried by washing his hands, literally and figuratively, of the situation, saying, I'm not making a decision. I'm leaving this in other people's hands. It's all going to work out in the end. But what do we know and what do we see? By not making a decision for Jesus, Pilate was making a decision against Jesus. And he goes down in history in infamy as the man who ordered the scourgings and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. By not making a decision for Jesus, Pilate lined up with the enemies of Jesus. And many people will attempt the same thing that Pilate did to remain neutral on the subject of Jesus. That's what people are doing when they say things like, no, I'm with you, man, Jesus was a great teacher, or yeah, Jesus was a good man, an exceptionally good man. Jesus was a a spiritual messenger who came to teach us how to love each other in a greater way. The problem with that approach is that Jesus made claims about himself that are a lot more spectacular than that. Jesus made claims that force every single one of us to make a decision about who he really is. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. Muhammad didn't make that claim. The Buddha didn't make that claim. Confucius, the Tao, didn't make that claim. Jesus said he was God in the flesh. He also claimed he was the only way to heaven, the only way to a relationship with God. And in case you were confused, he also said that all other teachings... All other teachers, all other religions, all other systems of belief are, in the words of Jesus, thieves and robbers. See, Jesus doesn't let you off the hook by just saying he was a good man or a great teacher. Every single one of us is forced into a decision. Was Jesus lying? Was he crazy? Or was he telling the truth? But there's no room for this good man, good teacher business. Jesus doesn't give us that option. And by not making a decision, we're not staying neutral. Like Pilate, not making a decision for Jesus is making a decision against Jesus. When push comes to shove, everybody, every single one of us bows down and serves something. And when Pilate was forced to bow to something, He bowed to the pressure of people and his love of wealth, power, and prestige. He wasn't ready to give up the throne in his life to Jesus. He still wanted to be his own God and call the shots for himself. There's only two sides. There's no neutral position. 
And we, like Pilate, will be forever known, forever defined by the decision we make about Jesus. Right now, every single one of us has made a decision about Jesus. Nobody's neutral. So which side are you on? You're on one of those sides. I'm with Jesus, the one who gives life and peace and joy and hope and healing and eternal life. I hope you're with him too. Write this down. We, like Pilate, will be forever known for the decision we make about Jesus. Like Pilate, we'll be forever known for the decision we make about Jesus. The second person I want us to look more closely at is this cat Barabbas. When you read the gospel accounts, at first it can seem like the only reason Barabbas is in there is to highlight just how evil the enemies of Jesus are, that they would want such a terrible man released rather than the perfect innocent son of God, Jesus. But there's much, much, much more going on here. You see, Pilate, desperately trying to find a way to remain neutral, tries to take advantage of this tradition of granting amnesty, freedom, to a Jewish prisoner over the feast of Passover. And he knows that the the only real other candidates are terrible, terrible people. And so he's trying to rig the game by, by putting Jesus up against these other crazy options, the most prominent of them is Barabbas, he's a thug, he's a a hooligan, a man without morals. And so the decision that's presented to the crowd is, is who do you want? And the only real options are, are Jesus or Barabbas. Jesus is being charged by the Jews with blasphemy. You wanna talk about blasphemy? This scene is blasphemy. The perfect, blameless, innocent son of God, on the one hand, and a wicked man who's deserving of death on the other. And Pilate is saying to the people, who should go free? Who do you want? Everything about this scene is wrong. It's all wrong. How can this be happening? But it gets worse when they're asked to choose between Jesus who heals, restores, and sets free and delivers. When they're asked to choose between that Jesus and an evil and wicked man, the people cry out, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What? Maybe you've heard the story and pictured it in your mind. Maybe you've seen a movie that depicted this moment and the part that's clear to us and the part that we can all visualize, even though it may not have gone down like this, Barabbas might not have ever been brought before the people, but in the movies he always is, right? The part we can visualize always is Pilate with Jesus on one hand and Barabbas on the other hand and the crowd screaming, give us Barabbas. But there's two scenes that I believe happened that are never shown in those movies. The first scene is the camera that's not on Jesus as the crowd answers Pilate by shouting, give us Barabbas. And what that camera would have shown is the bloody, beaten, and bruised head of Jesus wearing a crown of thorns, nodding along with the crowd as Jesus speaks out with them, free Barabbas, free Barabbas, free Barabbas. Because Jesus loves Barabbas. He loves him. And Jesus came to the earth with the mission of suffering and dying in our place. Every single one of us, starting with Barabbas. And so as the crowd is crying out, free Barabbas, I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus is nodding his head, saying along with them, yeah, free Barabbas, free Barabbas. Are you starting to see the picture here? We're Barabbas, you and me. And some of you know enough about Hebrew to figure out what the name Barabbas means. Bar just means son of, and Abbas 
or Abba just means father. Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. That's not a coincidence because when Barabbas stood next to Jesus, he was a guilty sinner. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a wicked man. And don't kid yourself. When you and I stand next to Jesus, the perfect son of God who never sinned, we don't look any better than Barabbas. When we're put up next to Jesus, we're just as guilty, just as deserving of death. And yet the Lord when he looks at us, sees instead a potential son of the father, a potential daughter of the father. And the second scene that we forget about is the one that shows Barabbas being unchained and told you're free to go as Jesus is being taken away to be scourged and crucified. As Jesus was being taken away to be killed, there was this moment when a Roman soldier walked up to Barabbas, whose guilt is never in question. We know he's guilty. Everyone knows he's guilty. Removed his chains and said, you're free to go. You're free to go. Unless Jesus had shown up in that situation, unless Jesus had been hated, and brought to Pilate by his enemies. Unless Jesus had been there in that place at that time, Barabbas was a dead man. And it was an absolute miracle that out of nowhere, a man named Jesus showed up and all the wrath, all the punishment, all the justice that should have been poured out on Barabbas gets directed towards Jesus instead and Barabbas goes free. You see, the father treated Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Write that down. The father treated Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas is me. Barabbas is you. And Jesus loved me. He loved you, and he died for me, and he died for you, even when, like Barabbas, we were ungrateful and ignorant to the significance of what he was doing for us. God is perfect, and so he judges to a perfect standard. That's his right, just like it's our right to judge the members of our society to our standards. But instead of giving us the punishment that our sins deserve, Jesus took them upon himself and took our place so that we could enter the family of God as a son of the Father, a daughter of the Father. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says it like this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus switched places with us. The innocent was condemned so that the condemned could be set free. What Jesus has done for us is the greatest act of love the universe ever has or ever will know. This is what love is. Barabbas didn't go free because of anything he did. In fact, he did everything he could to not go free. He messed up his life so bad But Barabbas went free because Jesus took his place, period. That's it. In 1 Peter it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus took your place. He took your punishment. And he died the death that you should have died. And you can disappear into the crowd like Barabbas and walk away from Jesus and never look back. Or you can give your life to the one who loved you that much and begin to experience the life and relationship with God that you were created for. It's your choice. But the one thing you can't have any doubt about is that Jesus loves you. Man, he loves you. He loves you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you so much that you love us. That every single one of us
is Barabbas. We're guilty. There's no question about it. But you have loved us and said, let me be punished in their place. Let me die in their place so that they can go free. You loved us before we even knew your name, before we were even born. And Jesus, when we're confronted with a love this radical, this extreme, this complete, how can we say anything other than yes, Lord? I want that. And we want you. So he invites you to, to rule and to reign in our lives, Jesus. We ask that you would speak to us. If any of us feels like you've been silent, would you take our mind back to the last thing you said to us and give us the faith and the boldness to say yes to you now, to respond to you this time and deal with whatever it is that you're asking us to deal with. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.